Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 202 for June 25th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 69. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure. And ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, <laughs> Mr. Security himself, Steve Gibson. I'm going to be Johnny Olson. <laughs> also, yeah, you know, we just lost Ed McMahon the other day. Yeah, isn't that That's sad? Really sad, yeah. yeah. He lived, I think he was 86, and, yeah. uh, and then he 86 himself. So no one really talked about what the cause of death was, but of course, you know, you and I grew up with him oh, uh, so and Johnny great. Carson. So. He was so great. He, yeah. uh, I think it's interesting because I think you and I are of an age that Johnny, uh, then the Tonight Show was really uh, important. Yep. I didn't realize Leno had done it for 10 years. So uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's moved on and it's uh, Conan O'Brien. But and you remember the big controversy when it was, who's it going to be, Leno or right? Letterman? Yeah, they made a wonderful miniseries about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was really good. Uh, uh, what was it? Well, I can't, was it called Night Shift? I can't remember. Anyway, hi. Hello, Leo. <laughs> how are things going? First of all, I got to ask you, how's your DX? Uh, we have the question. Now, the first question on the show, actually, is that because I had, I had a note to bring it up last week and I... I just I hadn't written it down, and so I forgot in scanning my uh, stuff. So let's do that when we we'll get into our Q and A questions. This is a Q and A day, as all our even uh, episodes are. Yep, at least for the time being, and uh, and it's good. So I want to find out about the Kindle DX before we get to our questions and answers. Are is there any security news? To talk about? Yeah, not heavy news. Uh, there was, of course, mega news uh, last week and the week before. Uh, I did want to mention that um, all Mozilla stuff, Firefox, Thunderbird, and SeaMonkey, have recently been upgraded So uh, to fix, naturally, some bad uh, various sorts of remote code execution exploits. So Firefox needs to be at... As of this podcast, 3.0.11, where mine is, Thunderbird comes up to 2.0.0.22, and SeaMonkey needs to be at (laughs) 1.1.17. As of this recording. As of this recording. This is all a moving target, of course, so... Uh, but as of this point, that's where you want to have those versions. Um, oh, I now I'm know- using the beta of uh, 3.5 on Firefox, and I don't know if they've updated that, or I presume they have. Yeah, I read something about that recently. I don't remember what now. The release I'm- candidate one was is is I th- well, let me check. Uh, the last version that uh, I got was release candidate one. Let's see uh, if they have an. I'll check and see if there's an update. Uh, and as I remember, to- that adds some HTML5 features. Yes, that's where we're all headed, and I'm sure right. you're going to hate that. I'm hating it. 
<laughs> if it's new, I'm skeptical. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it doesn't say beta anymore. So I guess this is the final 3.5. And I'll, I'll check for updates and see if they're updating it. Nope. No um, I did note that uh, we uh, last week we commented on the release of Safari 4. Mm-hmm. And there was a little tweak that they made to it to version 4.0.1. Yeah. Not a security issue, just a compatibility issue with iPhoto. So they okay. fixed a little problem they had. Um, you know, this sort of stuff, uh, software development sort of tends to mature and get finished exponentially where, you know, the rate of things that are being fixed slows down, but it doesn't just stop instantly. So, you know, this, this it makes sense that with a big new release like this, they would have found something that sort of sneaked through their 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 final qualification. And then I did want to note something that I just picked up in the news. We also talked about the iPhone having been updated to 3.0 and, you know, all the new features that it offers. I thought it was also significant that it fixed more than 46 security vulnerabilities. Wow. <laughs> um, in, as you know, that were that existed in the last version 2.0 release um, in Safari and Mail. Um, and that those flaws, which, you know, they kept relatively quiet about, could be exploited to make calls without user interaction, uh, execute malicious code, and crash the phone. So, and, and also interestingly, that number of fixes is nearly four times as many as in the previous iPhone update. So, you know, they're... They're focusing on it and and keeping it clean. And, you know, phones are a target for um, all kinds of mischief. So it's a good thing that, you you know, you want. I mean, it's inherently a communicating device. Our phones are getting very sophisticated. Well, and, and they're always online now. So that's exactly, you know, that's that's the problem with computers these days, too. They're always online. On the topic of my being skeptical of new things, when I was running through the mailbag here, I ran across a question from a listener that was exactly something I was going to mention. He says, I love the security show. I listen to every episode each week at least two or three times. I can't get enough learning about viruses, bugs, spyware, malware, botnets, backdoors, trojans, spoofing, <laughs> superworms, rootkits, exploits, ghost nets, hackers, etc. Yay. <laughs> Not sure that he left out anything for the etc. to encompass. And he said, in addition, I love studying cryptography, steganography, biometrics, and computer forensics. Steganography is where you put uh, the crypto... hide something. In in a picture or something, right? Yes, exactly. I bet, for example, the least significant bits of a high-resolution photo can actually contain, you know, like a black-and-white image or text or or whatever. And he says, "Um, uh, I've been listening to Security Now over the past year, so now I'm going back in time, starting with the first episode, which has been really exciting. Oh, that's I nice. listen to one or more episodes every day on my iPhone while eating, while showering, while <laughs> driving, and before going to bed. Your show is awesome. Oh. Thanks for the hard work, endless security alerts, and motivation to learn more. So, my first two questions are, what do you think about Microsoft Security Essentials, a.k.a. Moro? This Have was you just tested- announced last week. Yes. Have you tested the public beta yet? And so to answer that question, um, I have not tested it. It is certainly interesting. I think it's going to be significant. It is essentially, for those listeners who haven't heard of it, um, it is what's essentially Windows, Microsoft's next generation of their live OneCare, which used to be for purchase, 
What's significant is this is going to be the first from Microsoft full AV um, for for spyware, malware, viruses, free, which will be available from Microsoft. And it does not only scanning, but on-the-fly interception and detection. It'll be compatible with XP, Vista, and Windows 7, not back to Windows 2000, um, both 32- and 64-bit versions. You will have to have a genuine you know, certified Windows version that, that, you know, their servers are happy with. So it will not be able to be used with with illegitimate pirated versions that don't get the, you know, the the genuine advantage stuff from Microsoft. At this point, it's beta only and the beta is closed. They only they had it open for about 75,000 users. It went immediately bang and it shut down. So, you know, I wouldn't be saying more about it at this point anyway, but certainly it will get a podcast as soon as as soon as it's available so that it's relevant to our listeners. Um, and, you know, I've got friends who where, where I feel a little guilty telling them that they've got to, you know, pay an annual license fee to get AV or they install a demo version and then it then ask it expires and it tells them, well, you have to pay for this um, or it's not going to work anymore. I, I uh, you know, so. I think this is going to be significant. Yeah, and we frequently coming, recommend uh, free antiviruses for that reason. Better a free one, even if it's not as good, than nothing. Then, exactly. But you got to wonder, what do what Symantec and, and, and uh, McAfee do if, if Microsoft's giving away AV? Yeah, I'm, you know, this is the steady march of Windows functionality. I mean, once upon a time, it didn't have a browser, and it had no firewall, and it had no AV. You know, then it got a browser and all the browser people were all in a kerfuffle. You know, then Windows got a firewall. Oh, no, it's going to put all the firewall guys out of business. Well, you know, initially, you know, it wasn't very capable. Initially, it was turned off. Now it's turned on. So you argue, well, you know, do you really need a third party firewall now? And now Windows gets AV. I mean, it was foreseeable. It was inevitable. And I just think, well. You know, the people who were doing those things had a certain window of opportunity to, you know, you know, to to make profit and to get ahead. And and, you know, I'm sure they'll stay around. They'll come up with, you know, enterprise right. solutions and, and, val- and, you know, additional features that Microsoft doesn't have. That's what have the Rod so- said. He said, you know, it just gives it, they have to branch out. They have to expand. Yes. yes. Um, but but the real question is, you know, first of all, I think we both agree it's great that Microsoft's doing this. It's kind yes. of almost incumbent on them to to provide a security solution for free. Yes, and, and and as someone as I am who really prefers lightweight, integrated, nice solutions, I will say that the the people who have played with the beta are very impressed with how lightweight it is. How you know, because one of the one of the things, unfortunately, that these third-party kitchen sink products have have evolved into is something heavy that it's almost more of a problem for your system than actually getting malware. And this is, you know, this is software that you deliberately install. I mean, it's you know, it's it's hooked into everything. It's it's just sitting there, really being more of a problem most of the time than the actual problem it's trying to solve. So. You know, if the idea that you know Microsoft has something which is lightweight and and simple and free, 
and works and is being updated. And there's some interesting things they're doing that we'll be talking about when we actually cover this in depth in the podcast. But I did want to just sort of do a little shout out about it and uh, um, let our users know that we'll certainly be covering it in depth when uh, it becomes relevant. Yeah. And, and of course, yeah, that's the issue, too, is is it going to be as good? You know, if, if, if Microsoft gives it away, it's going to be widely used. They're not requiring people to download it. No, you know, it would, at this point, again, you know, it's like, you know, you, we also weren't once upon a time required essentially to use Windows Update. But right. now, now we are <laughs> crazy if yeah. you don't. And yes, and things stop working unless you keep yourself current. Right. So, again, we can it's foreseeable that at some point in the future, Microsoft will say, well, this is just so good for everyone that we're, it's no longer optional. It's like <laughs> so good, okay. not just for everyone, but for the net. I mean, really, that's the that's the issue. Yes. You're protecting not just yourself. And that's the thing I kind of try to beat into people on the radio show. Uh, this isn't just for you. <laughs> this is for the in- ecology of the Internet as a whole. Right. You right. Do this. Um, in the errata category, I have two little blurbs. Uh, a reader sent me a, a fun PDF. There was a slideshow that Brian Kernigan of Princeton in the Princeton Computer Science Department gave in his, his CS152 lecture. And... We were talking the other day, one of the questions in our, I think it was our previous Q&A, was, was prompted by a listener's question, trying to nail down exactly what scripting was. Hmm. You know, what, what right. is scripting? You know, and, and we talked about how it's sort of amorphous. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. I mean, I know what it is, and I know what it isn't, but when, when pressed to really define where the boundary is, it's it's a definitely a fuzzy boundary. But what I loved was that in this slide presentation from Kernigan was a quote from Larry Wall, the creator of Perl. Perl. The and ultimate so, scripting language. Exactly. And so the, this quote, and I don't, I'm not sure where it appeared, where Larry said it, but he said, quote, scripting is a lot like obscenity. <laughs> I can't define it, but I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> Quoting the uh, old Supreme Court, I can't remember which Supreme Court justice, was it Brennan who said, I think it was Justice Brennan who said, I can't define pornography, but I'll know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. <laughs> well, that's a good, actually good definition. You do know scripting when you see it. Yeah, And it's exactly. hard to make say, a well, technical that's... definition. Right, right. I love that. And then in my final little bit of bizarre, I mean, <laughs> an event I could have never predicted, literally. Um, in the last couple Q&As, we were talking about the cert- the expiration of security certificates. One of the questioners asked, hey, well, when a certificate expires, what happens? Does, does, it, does it stop working? Uh, can you still use it? Can you still connect to the service and, and so forth? And I, I talked about how, you know, every so often I'd run across a website whose certificate had expired and you got this warning notice that said, Hey, the certificates expired. And I had, I talked about how you, you could imagine behind the scenes, they're scurrying around. I actually, that's the, that's the term I chose. Well, wouldn't you know it? GRC's main security certificate expired, caught me completely unaware last Thursday and I was scurrying. <laughs> I got some emails saying, does Steve know his certificate is expired? <laughs> now, how, did they not send you a notice saying your they certificate? They tried. Yeah. I have no I've done doubt. This. I've done this too. So Yes. They had a three-year-old email address 
because I I signed up for the longest expert the longest duration certificate I could. And so I, when I looked, when I, when I went back and was scurrying, I thought, oh, that's why I got no notifications was that, you know, I'm sure they were, they were trying and, they, and that email address from 2006 was bouncing. And uh, so I, I, it's funny because I was all settled in at 5 a.m. Uh, at Starbucks on Thursday for a nice long coding session. I checked my mail and Sue, my bookkeeper, had sent me a note the prior afternoon, late in the afternoon, saying, hey, you know, when I tried to connect to GRC to do our bookkeeping stuff, you know, check in with with our e-commerce system, I got this notice about our security certificate expired. And first I'm thinking, well, I wonder what she did. (laughs) It's her fault. That's wrong. Yeah, I blame Colleen when anything like that happens. (laughs) What did Colleen, what did she do? So I kind of sigh and, you know, (laughs) go to GRC and try to bring up perfect passwords, which is one of many things which I mean, like basically all of GRC is wrapped in SSL. You go to Shields Up. You need a secure. You need an SSL connection in order to deobfuscate your your connection IP. You use perfect paper pass or perfect passwords to to protect the passwords that you're receiving. That's SSL. Of course, e-commerce is, um, and so nothing worked. It's like, uh-huh. oh my goodness so i <laughs> so I, good i checked on the you know the pages certificate and in fact in, in firefox which of course i'm using now it said this your certificate expired on on um june 16th it's like Arr! so i folded up shop and came scurrying home <laughs> and uh you know a couple hours later we were good to go again so how much uh, yes. how much is that it's pretty expensive isn't it oh it was it was horrendous and in fact i'm annoyed with myself because it, it was twenty five hundred and eighty dollars, oh, twenty eight fifty or oh, something. Man, I got it for three years, and I'm I'm buying the best. I'm you know I'm I use Verisign, right. which is the most expensive there is. I but I for some reason three years ago I had upgraded to their Pro version, which is not the EVA, not the enhanced you know validation mm-hmm. that we've talked about. But but I could have spent a thousand dollars. But I would have had to fight with somebody there by phone to downgrade what I bought three years ago. Because the pro and version's meaningless, really. It is. It's yeah. it, it 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 it's enforces, an upsell. Yes, it's upsell. It prevents you from having a forty bit key requiring you to have a hundred twenty eight bit key. But you wouldn't and, do a forty bit key anyway. Exactly. Nothing. Exactly. You know, the export stuff was relaxed a long time ago. Yeah. Everyone uses 128 bits. I completely could have done it. And then what really bugs me is that, as I think I may have mentioned this once before, last summer when I was working on the DNS spoofability stuff, I got a wildcard certificate, mm. star.grc.com, mm-hmm. thinking that it would have, it would, I could have used it for anything dot dns dot grc dot com only to learn that the star only gives you one one domain level of wildcardness well that certificate was still valid for a few more months because it hasn't been a year and i only bought that one for a year because i was experimenting so i could have quickly switched to that one which would have given me then months to resolve the issue of this over expensive mm-hmm. upsold pro certificate 
But of course, you know, in the benefit with the benefit of hindsight, I didn't realize I had that extra one until I was installing the one I had just bought. You it's were like, in a hurry. I don't blame you. You were. Yes. You said I got to fix this. Well, yeah, I mean, basically everything that GRC is about was down, and in the most embarrassing way possible. It's like, uh, hello, Steve. Oh boy. Yeah. So. Anyway, it's all fixed, and we're better for three years, and I've got all kinds of bells and whistles. I gave VeriSign a never-to-expire alias for, for themselves to use, so I'll this time you know, I won't get caught short again. But I did get a kick out of it because I was just talking about what happens when this happens. So, and, wait, say that again. So you did something that will so that you never expire ever again? No, what I did was I, I can set up with my email system various email aliases. And so I gave them their own personal email address for me. Ah, which so that gets right through. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you so don't no miss it again. No one else will ever have it. Yeah. It identifies you know, where it came from and why, and it'll always map to my current email address. Oh, that's clever. So they'll always be able to get through to me. Very and clever. what I did find interesting was that people were still buying Spinrite. They pushed past the scary Ooh. expire. No, no, I mean, it's fine. Because uh, yeah, but I mean, there's no. nothing wrong with them doing that. But right. but but that certificate is what guarantees they're getting a good spin. Right? They should they should be more cautious. No, because no? it said it expired. The, the oh. I mean, it expired right then. Oh, okay. And that it was from www.grc.com. So all I mean, everything was still there, except that it had expired. You know, some number of hours before. Got it. So so they still had verification that they were at the right site and a, they were still secure f- through the whole purchasing process. All, they had to make a judgment. OK, do, how much do I want spin right? Uh, I trust Steve. This thing just expired. He's scurrying, no doubt, somewhere as I yeah. as I indeed I was. So I'm going to go ahead and, and push through the scary message and purchase spin right. So, you know, to our listeners, I would say, use your best judgment. Uh, you know, look at if, if you run across an expired certificate, when did it expire? Who did it expire against? Is it, you know, if it expired years ago, the, then I would worry. But if it happened, a, you know, that day, they're scurrying. And, you know, if you need this a, a secure connection, you can still get it. And the rest of the certificate is still as good as it was, you know, before the calendar changed the pages. It's just, you know, it's just that, first of all, this is a revenue stream for companies like VeriSign, which really annoys me, but it does help by forcing this, you know, constant reproving who you are. Um, you could argue that, uh, you know, the whole issue of these things expiring periodically does increase security, and that's the whole point. Right. There are, are there free certs? There used to, thought used to do a free cert. Uh, thought did before they got purchased. Right. Now they're Verisign. Now they're Verisign. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okily dokily. Uh, we have some questions for you, Mr. Gibson. Would you oh, like, yeah. would you like to get to those questions? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Before we do that though, I want to mention our friends at nerds on site. I want to be a nerd.com. You know, that website, uh, nerds on site is a team of it professionals. They're looking for more team members. I just got a, a, a note from a, Nerd in Australia. They're just all over the world. It's so cool. Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and even India. So if you're in the IT business, uh, you like being in business, 
you know, your own business for yourself, but you don't want to be by yourself. If you'd like to have some support running your business, some some extra tools, perhaps uh, some uh, training, uh, the uh, help of other nerds, nerds on site is for you. They need everybody, by the way, all competencies and skills, including Mac and PC, Cisco and Oracle, fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers. Don't think it's just geeks. You know, it could be sales, trainers. Of course, your security guys, absolutely. In fact, they have training for the Astaro Security Gateway. You can get your certificate from them. Antivirus gurus. They really are looking for people who are focused on today's small and medium-sized enterprises. This is the, the kind of the, the big growth sector right now. If you're interested and you would like to find out more about what Nerds on Site can offer you, it's very simple. You can register for a nerds-only meeting in your neighborhood today. Just go to IWantToBeANerd.com. IWantToBeANerd.com. No cost, no obligation. Find out more. Um, this is a, a really great way to kind of do what you love, but not be on your own, out there on your own. It's really a, it's, you know, we're, we're a social, humans are social beings, and it's really great uh, to have the help of other nerds in your business. I want to be a nerd.com. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. Steve, are you ready for questions? <laughs> what are yep. you laughing at? What are you laughing at? I'm ready. We're gonna, actually, I'm interested in this first one. Very interesting. Michael in St. Louis asks about a review, as you mentioned, of your Kindle DX. I was curious when we're going to get the review you commented on in a previous podcast. I've been really looking at that as a possible reader, but there's no local store I can go to and put my hands on it. That is a disadvantage, isn't it? I'm weary, uh, wary rather, to make such an investment. I read and have a large collection of uh, technical books in PDF format. There's a good reason to do it. And would like to know how native PDF support works on the DX. So you've had it a couple of weeks now. And I think your original intuition about it was correct, oh, Leo. No. Which was? I forgot. Um, a little big and ungainly uh, and difficult to use as a book. Um, I was thinking, okay, fine. I'm an early adopter of technology. I mean, I'm I'm... I'm easy about having all these things. This will be my PDF reader because the fact is PDF being a page layout format, as we've, as we've said, you cannot reflow a PDF the way you can reflow a book, which right. is inherently just a string of, of text. Um, the PK where guys provided me with a big pile of documentation for SecureZip, the topic of last week's podcast. And so I thought, oh, cool. This will be a great opportunity for me to use the Kindle DX instead of printing out all these PDFs as I would have in the past. And they were illegible on it. What? Um, oh, that's very disappointing. I mean, I would say unreliably legible. A couple were you mean font size problem. Yes, or? and font color. Oh. So it was gray. I couldn't. I mean, the if you rotate, you know, the the DX has rotation, which unfortunately they they're doing the auto rotation thing, and I don't know if they haven't got it down right or I haven't messed with it enough. But it's the first thing I fumbled around trying to turn off because just in normally holding it, it was switching over into landscape mode when I didn't want it to. So the good news is you can take over manual control so that you in in the same button where you change the font size is a dialog that allows you to set what you what you want for your orientation. 
I'm a lefty and I really like sometimes being able to hold it in my left hand. They removed the page turn buttons from the left hand margin. It's only now on the right hand edge of the, the tablet, which I'm not happy with because now I can't hold it in my left hand and turn the page. Um, it had to have been for reason of cost reduction because additional parts and additional buttons, those all cost something. And so they must have said, oh, well, you know, no one's left-handed or, you know, if they are, they can hold in their right hand. But, you know, so that annoys me about it. If I rotate it into landscape mode, then then the virtual PDF page is expanded enough to be legible. But if you have, for example, a two-column PDF, as many PDFs are, then when you get down to the bottom of the first one, you've got to go backwards up to the top. Um, the PDFs don't page align. That is, as you page down, you end up with sort of the bottom of one page and the beginning of the next one coming up instead of them arranging to align correctly, which is annoying. Um, anyway, overall, I'm disappointed. I mean, it is truly large. It is. It's funny too because after when I first unboxed it and was looking at it and holding it and ooing and aahing and thinking, oh, look at this magnificent big screen. And, you know, you sort of get used to that size. Then I said to myself, I wonder what the other one looks like, what my, my Kindle 2 looks like. And I, I went right <laughs> to it and took it out, and it looked dinky right. by comparison. Compared, because, I mean, this thing is much, much bigger, huh? Now, what I will say is that what's compelling about the DX is that the screen as a percentage of the total surface is much larger than on the Kindle 2. Right. The Kindle 2's keyboard is much larger and it just the, the screen seems very small in the overall size of the Kindle 2 whereas certainly the, the DX has just a magnificent screen. But I think it's just sort of it's sort of in between. It's not good enough to be used as a general PDF reader, certainly, if you, I mean, I have I have read PDFs that are magnificent on it. And if I were, for example, printing an RFC, uh, you know, a, 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 a multi-page request for comment, an RFC document from the internet, I could print it to a PDF, move the document to my to my Kindle DX, and it would and read it just magnificently. It'd be perfect. So, so PDFs you make and and PDFs of simple text. They work beautifully, but that's not always what your you know your source material is. And I found many of the PDFs from the PK PKware guys for no fault of them. For example, I did end up reading them on a regular PC browser, mm -hmm. and they were they were fine there. Mm -hmm. But the the DX did not do them justice. And so I would argue that for five hundred dollars, people are going to be you know disappointed if they really think they're going to be able to read any pdf they encounter it's really the case still that a you know a higher resolution color screen like you have on any laptop or tablet is is a better solution for a pdf or printing it out on paper uh, oh well so I, again i think your intuition was right i i could wish for a kindle 3 which <laughs> would which would be the physical size of the Kindle 2, but much more of it as screen. 
That is, you know, do what they did with the, with the DX and squeeze the keyboard down because you hardly use the keyboard. Yeah, you, know, you, very, you use it to order and that's it pretty much. Yes, or, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, squeeze it down, give us more screen, but, but keep it paperback book size. Because, I mean, that really, you were right, Leo, the, the convenience of it being that size compared to it being the size of the DX. I mean, it's just big. The problem is there's no way you're going to be able to read page documents on a small screen. It's just it, they're going to be too small. So it's like, you know, it's just like like the problem with the keyboard. You can't have a small keyboard and full touch typing speed because, you know, because you can't. You have to have a full keyboard in order to, you know, run at the speed that you normally do. So, you know, that that human factors interaction is just it's a fact of life. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, I'm glad you spent the money, not me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We all owe you a debt of gratitude. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm happy with the Kindle, too. And I, you know, I, I took it with me to the beach. We're, we're spending the week at the beach house and uh, at a beach house we rented. When I say the beach house, it sounds like I own one. I do not. We, we rented a beach house and uh, it's been great going on the beach, sitting on the beach. The sun is shining and it's really legible, yeah. which a laptop would not be. No, that's very true. And I have to say also... Uh, while I'm, you know, uh, dunning on, on the DX, it's also heavy. The people oh. I helped, the people I gave it to, um, said, "Oh, you know, I mean, they, it's like so that you you try to hold a corner, and it's it's trying to twist itself out of your hand mm. because it's heavy enough." I think what that says is that they there's a lot of battery in there. I think there's right. a, probably a very large surface area battery, a lot of mass. It does turn pages more quickly than the two. I think they're running the processor faster, mm-hmm. which they can afford to do, which is going to consume more power. But they can afford it because they've got much more battery area spread out in this in this DX than they do in the Kindle too. You know, it's probably about twice the area. So, so I mean, it's it's snappy performance. I like that about it. But it, it's just it is unwieldy. It's too big. Well, thank you for that, and uh, I'm glad uh, I'm, <laughs> I waited <laughs> Yeah, for you. <laughs> Another question. This is from Steve uh, Whaley in Lexington, Illinois. He asks, hey, you talked about SecureZip, and you said it was free. Really? On, uh, I'm unable to find a download of this product that's free. It seems PKWare wants $39.95 per user for home PCs. Am I missing something? Um, many people wrote variations of this question. So I, I apologize to our listeners for not having given you the simple URL. I'm sure I said, just put secure zip into Google and it'll take you right there. It does, but the, the URL is secure zip. So I should have just said that www.securezip.com redirects you to a page oh, yeah, on, right there, free download. And it is. Yeah. And, you know, it does have that 30 day uh, feature expiration that I mentioned where it'll give you the office integration, the office and outlook email integration for 30 days. And then that dies. Yet everything else about it stays fully functional. And, you know, if you don't want to be able to like if you don't need to send a piece of email with a literally with a single click or save a word document with a single embedded function then secure the, the that free post 30 day secure zip which continues to function just fine is really all you need 
Another question from a professional programmer in Sacramento. I love that. His name is Davian Eversman. Uh, he says, why coding error uh, equals remote code execution? Steve, first ditto to what everyone always says. I've been listening since episode one. Hope you and Leo keep it up for some time to come. So here's my question. I'm a professional programmer. I've been doing it for about 15 years now. I understand most of the programming errors you describe when you talk about various software flaws that vendors are patching in your weekly security updates. But what I don't understand is why it always seems that every coding error means remote code execution vulnerabilities. In my experience, my coding errors just mean my application ceases to work. It freezes or crashes or quits. But every error you mention every week seems to mean remote vulnerabilities. Buffer overrun equals remote code execution. String index mismatch equals remote code execution. Array index out of bounds equals remote code execution. It almost seems like programmers would need to try to make remote code execution so available. Sometimes after your reports, I feel like remote code execution flaws seem more reliable than a program functioning as described. What am I missing? Again, love the podcast. Looking forward to Mac spin, right? So I can run it without removing drives from my Macs. With a PR person like Leo, I think you'd sell a few thousand copies in the first five minutes if it were available. Thanks so much, Damien. I'd like well, to what, e- echo that, by the way. <laughs> what Damien is missing is that the show talks about remote code execution because it's a bad thing. Right. So the bugs which software has and which are not bad security vulnerabilities, we don't talk about. <laughs> they just crash. There's plenty of other bugs <laughs> in software that just makes them crash, where, you know, they're bad, they crash, people are annoyed, but there they're happens, as exactly as he is suggesting, there happens to be no way of preloading the content of the buffer which you overflow into or leaving stuff on the stack, which you end up executing. You know, we understand how it is that some of the mistakes result in, in, in remotely provided code getting executed. We've talked about those earlier in the, the beginning podcasts of this, um, you know, four year run that we have so far. So, so our listeners understand that it is the case that exactly as Damien suggests, many bugs don't provide you with the means of loading code at the same time, but those aren't problems of security, so we don't talk about those. So <laughs> there are definitely plenty of problems that do not create this kind of remote code ex- execution. There are also problems that just, you know, they they they, they end up with like a privilege uh, escalation where it's you know you're able to uh, uh, to um, code is, that that is running is able to to elevate its privileges from your limited user status to admin or something and so there are other tricks that that can happen the worst of course is that without you knowing it you visit a website and now you've got something running on your machine as a consequence of viewing that page those are the exciting problems those are the problems that 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 make the news and that force Microsoft to jump through hoops and get things patched or Adobe or Apple or you know anybody who's now in this internet connected word so world so the, the point is yes it seems that all these problems cause remote code execution because those are the ones we talk about <laughs> we only talk about those those are the, those are the although, security problems credit where credit's due these hackers work really really 
hard and are quite ingenious in uh, finding uh, code, uh, you know, finding ways to inject their code into these overflows. I mean, oh, it's, yeah, it's non-trivial fact, to do that. It's not. Yes, a, I, I, I've, I've mentioned, for example, the guys at EI who have a whole lab full of machines, and these machines are literally throwing random API calls with random parameters and packets with random data right. at the operating system and waiting for it to crash. When it crashes, then they go in forensically and find out what packet it was that caused the crash. Then they, they go in and disassemble the processing of that packet to look at why it crashed. Then, so so A, they've got a crash. Okay, that's news because it shouldn't crash. Then, But then by looking at ex- every detail of the nuance of what preceded the crash, they look to see whether, for example, the crash occurred when the computer executed just some random garbage that was in the packet. If so, then they think, wait a minute, let's give it a packet which qualifies for the crashing, that is, that makes it crash. But if possible, could we put other data in that packet that would also cause it to execute the data we choose? So they literally, they reverse engineer the exploit from a seemingly random occurrence. Most of us, you know, the machine crashes and we, you know, curse its maker and reboot and we're going again. But security researchers take that event of a collapse and say, ooh, you know, could this have been much worse than just a random seeming event? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, yes, you're right. It takes, it's, you know, it's serious kung fu to uh, to back this out into a an exploit. But some people have nothing better to do. Some people get paid for it. Some people... You know, sell their their exploits on the on the black market. Unfortunately. Yeah, there, because there is such a uh, a lot of money to be made, there is some incentive to do this extremely difficult and time consuming work. And Leo, if you had said to me this was what we'd be talking about twenty years ago, I'd have said no, this is science fiction. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem great- possible. Makes yeah. a great story, but you know, come on, it's not risen. You know, it's like you know, as I I, I mentioned, Neo selling the little disc right. at the in the, in the <laughs> right. opening scene of of the Matrix. It's like, come on, in the Couldn't future, happen. we're going to have fixed all this, aren't we? Well, apparently not, because the future is here. This is going to be. I think it's going to be worse as it gets as we get older, and there's more there's code. No indication that it's getting yeah. better, Leo. Yeah. And well, and I bet you there's some questions in here. We talked a little bit about uh, the idea of, of using languages that prevent this kind of stuff, but uh, on previous episodes, and as you pointed out, as, as long as there's programmers, there'll always be some mistakes yeah, somewhere. Those aren't fun, <laughs> and they're no fun to work. Those with. languages we want, we want bare metal. Let's get in there. Yeah. Joseph Vollmer in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, wonders whether WPA WPA two is quote quickly crackable. I'm fully up to date with all the episodes. Started listening to Security Now in January 2007. And I've been listening ever since and love the show. I'm an IT support pro and a bunch of my coworkers claim they can, or it is possible to, crack WPA and WPA2 without much trouble at all. The usual swagger. Mm. I always say, uh, I always argue saying if you set it up properly, like uh, using AES and use one of your pseudo, one of Steve's pseudo random 63 character printable uh, characters ascii characters it's not going to be crackable in a usable amount of time 
They claim there are all kinds of readily available hacking tools that allow you to crack it quickly. They say because of the number crunching power of GPUs, it can be cracked quickly using hacking tools. I, I agree. Cracking web, as we know, uh, is easy. Do that in 30 seconds now. Could you please shed some light on on WPA? I'd, I'd appreciate it. I continue to argue with them saying it's not possible. In which I always say you got to set it up right, of course. If you use dog1234 for a passphrase, no problem. By the way, I'm a proud owner of Spinrite. It saved my bacon many times. Now, if only work will finally listen to me and buy a site license, all will be well. I'm working on that one day. I hope it'll get it approved by management. And I will not stop until it happens. So, Steve, yes or no, WPA2, easily crackable. Joseph is absolutely right. I thought so. And it, I just I like the question because... It sort of feels like, you know, you know, like sort of this is coming from youngsters, you know, young. I can crack it. Ah, No problem. Hackers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Joseph should just say, fine, show me. Crack it. If these tools are available, if they're easy to do, put your put your evidence on the line. Show me. I mean, he he, he could make as large a bet as he want to as, as he wants to. If he uses one of GRC's. You know, random passwords. I mean, I use those myself. The other day I needed a random string for the header of a file to to be used as an index mark for from some versioning stuff in the DNS benchmark. I went to my own site, to my page. Fortunately, the, secu- the security certificate was still valid at that point. And uh, I know I, I had it generate those numbers for me, and I grabbed them and I used them because they're as random as anything you can get. So, I mean... Joseph could make he could make a bet as large as he wanted to, saying, "Okay, great, crack it," and yeah. it's absolutely safe. I mean, this is there. There is this sort of this, as you said, swagger is is perfect term for it among young hackers who you know read stories and they hang out on BBSs, and they they're these people who to really lay people sound like they know what they're talking about, but they're just. Full of it. Yeah, they throw right. in the uh, they throw in the little uh, tech obfuscation. Oh, but you use the GPO. Yep, just put some jargon in there, yeah. and it's like, oh, that sounds convincing. Well, it's just not the case. There is uh, exactly as Joseph says, there is no known problem at this point, and it was highly vetted. Unlike WEP, this you know the WPA protocol has really been well designed and well thought out, and we know of no way. To get around it, and you know, it's been designed also so that, for example, it, even even GPUs that are able to crank through, we're, we're talking about many bits, and you know, the the as you add a bit, every bit you add, as we've said, doubles the length of time that's required, even from a brute force attack. So you know, you know, you you could use a room of of graphic processing units. Uh, designing this, and they're still going to be churning away for a long, long time. Um, Joseph would get his money from his bet. Uh, let's see. A Security Now listener in California has asked to be anonymous while asking about a homegrown VPN client. Mm. Uh, as a consultant, I'm often asked to use a client's VPN for remote access to their network. My current client has a homegrown VPN client. It is an ActiveX add-on to IE. Is there some way I could determine what this VPN client is doing? Is there, I don't know, a keystroke logger I could use? Is it capturing non-VPN activities? 
Can it provide information about what I do for other accounts on the same computer? Can it be used as a gateway to install rootkits or other technologies on my system? Please sign me anonymous in California. I see his concern. He's being asked to run uh, software, strange software on his system, and he's got other clients to protect. He, he He's not sure it's safe. Yeah, it's a great question. And, I mean, it is, it's, you can see the position he's in. They're saying, oh, well, this is our homegrown VPN yeah. client. Well, first of all, I'm skeptical of some random company home growing their own VPN client. It's probably something that, you know, that they got from somewhere else. Who knows? As you know, because you've tried to, you've been writing VPN (laughs) software. It's non-trivial. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a non-trivial task. So, so I'm, I'm wondering where it really came from, but even so, this is a great question because it, it mean, we could broaden it a little bit and say, okay, I'm somebody who, as exactly as you say, Leo, I'm responsible for the security of many different people, many different clients. One client, for example, wants me to install something random on my machine. Well, how do I make that safe? How do I know what it's doing? How do I know that it's, yeah. that it's, that it's above board? And this, I would say, is a perfect example of where wrapping this thing in a virtual machine makes sense. You know, if if I were in this situation, I would be running one of the VMs like VMware. And I mean, especially, hopefully, our listeners using Firefox normally, this thing is an IE Ugh. ActiveX add-in. So put it in put it in a virtual machine. Get Windows That's running there. That's a good there. idea. That's a very good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then it's going to have some isolation. Then you know when when you're not running it, you're not running it. You know, it, it's going to have full networking abilities. It's going to be able to still do its VPN-ness. And you can, you, you know, you can full screen that that VM so that you can even forget that you're in a VM. But when you shut it down, you've shut it down. And it's it's very unlikely that it's going to be able to get out of that because, you know, it's it, the, the, the VM, as we've looked at, provides high levels of integrity. There, It's not necessarily absolutely bulletproof and perfect. But something that's not written to bust out of a VPN, I mean, out of a virtual machine, is just not going to be able to buy. It's not going to, you know, stumble out of it by mistake. So I think that's the best you can do. I mean, all the alternative is dual boot, you know, set up a separate boot for stuff like for this guy or use a different machine. But I mean, it it certainly is worth noting that um, that this is a concern. I think it's a great concern. Steve, another question for you from our great listeners. This is Anthony Fitch from Blaine, Kentucky. He says he saw it happen firsthand. First of all, I've listened to every episode of Security Now, and it has filled in all the gaps in content that were missing in my formal classes in college. That's awesome. This show has led me to win first place in the computer concepts category in the Phi Beta Lambda State Competition two years running Steve, that must make you feel good. That's awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's very cool. The reason I'm writing is to share with you that you were right about the insecurity of Eastern European ATMs. On a recent, two weeks ago, trip to Europe while in the Czech Republic, one of the members of our tour group had her debit card number stolen because she used an ATM in that area. This is good for me to remember because I'm going to China next week. Uh, her bank kindly returned the money that had been stolen because they emptied her bank account. Oh. Uh. 
although it was an extreme headache due to time zone differences and, of course, the costs of making phone calls back to the States. Thank you very much for your time. And as I would like to, uh, uh, I do not have a, sp- as much as I would like to, I do not have a spin right testimonial yet. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> as long as you have spin right, you probably don't need to do a testimonial. It's, everything just works. P.S. I'd be honored if you read this on the show. Of course, Anthony. And that's great. I thought that was just a nice little tidbit from a listener that I know we've talked a lot about the inappropriate use of Windows in mission critical um, environments. And, you know, and also we did cover the security news of Trojans being found in a whole bunch of Eastern European uh, ATMs. And, you know, a listener of ours knew somebody who, you know, he was standing there when it happened. So yeah, it's like, yep, 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 yep this yep, stuff is real. Yep, yep, yep. And it does remind me as I head off to uh, yeah. Asia, I'll be in China, Korea, and China, and uh, Japan. And, uh, I mean, but, you know, that's what you do when you travel nowadays. You don't carry traveler's checks anymore. A lot of people don't even take them anymore. You use, right. uh, use the ATMs to get the local currency. Yeah, I would say, you know, what you could do, if you can, don't don't use a card that's associated with all the cash that you have. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> set up a, set up a, you know, an yeah, account. Yeah, I do. Have. I have, oh, that's a good idea. Okay, I'll bring my, I have, a, I have a, an ATM card that I don't use very, it's like a secondary account. Great thinking. Yes. And mm-hmm. I will, I will, I think if I make sure to use it inside of banks, I'm probably a lot safer than if I just use one on the street. And but yeah, but again, belt and suspenders. I would also yeah. you just use a, a an account without a, a ton of money in it. That's a very good idea. Thank you. Uh, Rick Hoopner in Melbourne Beach, Florida, is worried about same plain text and multiple cipher text in Secure Zip. I'm sure he'll explain what that get means. Your propeller head. Uh, get your propeller head. Here we get go. Your, get, get here your we, here we go. go. Uh, Steve, in the discussion on Secure Zip, you said, and I quote. So the idea is, if you want three different people to be able to decrypt this zip file, you're able to attach their certificates to that file. And essentially, it takes their public key and encrypts this one-time-use symmetric key for each of them and connects it. So that when any of them receive it, they're able to open the file and they're able to inspect the certificates that are bundled along with it. Yep. Now, now, here's his question. Does the fact that one recipient now knows the plain text symmetric key... One, has the ciphertext for the other recipients and presumably can get the other recipients' public keys because, you know, those are stored easily, widely. Would it make it easier to crack the private keys? Ah, I thought in one of your previous episodes you said you never want to encrypt the same message with different keys. Or was it that you never want to use the same key to encrypt two messages? Either way, does this in some way weaken the cipher? If so, is it something ridiculous like going from 100 billion years to 10 billion years? I've been a listener since Security Now 001 and actively read the news groups as well as owning a copy of Spinrite. That saved my father-in-law's bacon. Man, Spinrite on a newly purchased 1.5 terabyte drive takes a lot of time. Also, I spin-write my two Series 2 TiVos and my old Dinosaur Series 1 TiVo, all with additional hard drive capacity because my wife would kill me if she lost any shows. That's actually a very good idea. Those drives get thrashed on a TiVo. Keep up the good work. I can't wait for CryptoLink to come out to replace my current Hamachi implementation. Any chance it'll support Windows mobile devices? Okay. So, great question from Rick. What he's saying is, and he's exactly right, is that in the case where multiple certificates are attached to 
In this case, he's talking about the secure zip system, where, for example, you you zip and you want to encrypt the content so that three different people, each with their own certificate, are able to decrypt it, but no fourth party, for example, nobody else can. The way that's done is that a, a 128 or 256 or 192, however many, however long the key is, a cryptographic quality, high quality, random number is chosen out of the air, um, called a nonce in, in crypto terms. It's something that's just random and you're just going to use it once. That is used as the symmetric key for performing the bulk encryption of the content. But instead of using, as we've talked about, you don't use, you don't do the bulk encryption with the public, private, you know, the asymmetric key because it's very time consuming and, and number crunchy intensive. Instead, you just choose a random key to do your bulk encryption. And it's that random key that you then encrypt using the, the asymmetric, the, the so-called public key technology. So this random, this random key is encrypted three times, once with each certificate, not, not serially, because that would require that all three be used to decrypt it. You would, you would, you would do it like in reverse order then. But instead, I mean that there's, it, that like the that random token is encrypted once with one certificate. So now, so now, so now it's there. It's encrypted again with the second certificate and a third time with the third certificate. So now you've got three encrypted versions of the key. Each one can only be decrypted with the matching private key for that certificate, which isn't available. It's only available on the, on the systems where those certificates are installed for these three different people. So now the, the zip file goes off to them all. So Rick's wondering if, the, if, if one of the recipients gains an advantage of any sort in this scenario because he's got a one of the certificates with a private key he's able to decrypt the the encrypted nonce that in, that that encrypted symmetric key which is intended for him that allows him to get the plain text version of the symmetric key which is what he needs in order to view the contents of the zip but he also has the two other encrypted versions of the key, which were bundled into the zip file, and he's got the public keys, which are publicly available for the other two people. So he's saying, hey, now I've got a lot of information here. I've got both the plain text, which I decrypted using my certificate, and the cipher text, which is common for um, which is 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 um, individual for each of the of the certificates that were created and the public key. Do do I have an advantage? The answer is absolutely not. The good news is mm. this is this is exactly what the public key 
the asymmetric key technology was designed for. A perfect example is the, is the normal case of digital signatures. Remember that when, when, you're, when you're doing a digital signature, you take a document and you hash it using a cryptographically strong hashing algorithm. Now, the signer will take their private key and encrypt that hash and then include it with the document. Now, the recipient gets the document and wants to verify it. How do they do that? They, they decrypt that signed hash with the signer's public key turning it back into the plain text version of the hash, then they independently hash the document using the same hashing algorithm and compare their their resulting hash to the decrypted hash. So what the information they have is exactly the same as the information that one of the zip file recipients would have. That is to say, they have both the plain text and the cipher text of and the public key, the same information. And as we know, the public key technology is secure against this sort of scenario. So the, the, the secure zip system where you've got multiple recipients is no less secure because of the way it implements the public key technology. But great question. Yeah, yeah. And it, actually, when he stated it, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I'm glad yeah. you glad you clarified, Steve. We're out of time for this episode, but not out of questions. We'll we, every other episode we answer your questions. You can submit them right now to grc.com/feedback, and uh, we will get to uh, as many questions as we can each and every even number mod two episode. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, don't forget to go to grc.com. That's Steve's website, it's short for Gibson Research Corporation. Now with a shiny new certificate. So for your security, <laughs> good for three years at least. We don't know what'll happen after that. And uh, when you're there, you can try Shields Up, his great program to test your router. You can download all sorts of free, wonderful programs, and of course, get Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. We also, our Steve also puts a, a transcript of every show up there, so you can read along. Uh, or cut and paste into your questions if you should choose next time. Uh, you can also listen to the 16 kilobit version or distribute that for the bandwidth impaired. It's all at grc.com. Steve, we will see you next time on Security Now. Talk to you then, Leo. Thanks. Security Now.